This is the Road Trekking Podcast with your host, Jimmy James. It's a show about my trip from Ontario to British Columbia and back in a vintage 92 camper van. And I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to Episode 5, Kenora to Winnipeg, subtitled, In Winnipeg, They'll Eat Your Leg. I, I want to explain that a little bit. It's a trope on a Dennis Lee poem. Uh, called In Kamloops, and that was featured in his book Alligator Pie, which I think is a book that everybody of my age range read when we were young. And I thought it was kind of suitable considering what happened to me when I was in Winnipeg. Nonetheless, let's start off with the trip log. So, current location, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Total kilometers traveled, 2,680. GPS coordinates, I do not know, but I will have some coordinates later in the episode, so that's good. Uh, total repair costs still sitting at $800. Uh, I did have some issues, but I was able to resolve them myself, as you will hear. So, uh, let's just start off. I left the Kenora area and headed to a place. My, my destination was called Birds Hill Provincial Park, which is a park that's about 15 minutes northeast of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now, once again, you're driving through the Ontario wilderness. There's just tree-lined roads, pine trees and pine trees as far as you can see. The road curves left and right. The speed limit is not adhered to by anybody. You've got everything from cars going, you know, 70, 80 kilometers an hour to transport trucks passing you at 120. I took my time. I, I stuck to the speed limit and I just wet, wove through the forest until I got to the border of Winnipeg. Now, something really interesting happens and it's basically right when you hit the border. It's like you hit a threshold and the highways change completely. I think Manitoba, you know, besides having a bit of a um, geographical difference from northern Ontario, although you wouldn't expect that to be just on the border, they have a different philosophy between their highways. The highways in Manitoba are straight, flat, level. And this particular section of the highway was separated by a wide swath of trees in kind of a boulevard type setup going down the middle, which I think is great for people, especially if you're passing, if you're going fast or slow, uh, or some kind of accident happens, there's always somewhere that you can get off the road. The other nice part is my van was getting the best fuel economy that it's ever gotten. Um, I haven't spoken much about the kind of fuel economy I, I was getting, but I did do a calculation and I was getting about 17 and change liters per 100 kilometers, which is actually really good considering the amount of weight and the amount of junk I'm traveling with. And that basically the van is like a giant brick going through the air. So I was quite impressed with the highways in Winnipeg. I, I traveled along this highway for quite some time. I did stop for fuel in a little town called Whiteshell, Manitoba. That's just on the Manitoba side of the Ontario-Manitoba border. And it is also interesting to note that Kenora is sitting only about 51, 52, according to my odometer, uh, kilometers from the border of Manitoba. Anyway, so I'm just shooting down this straight highway, great turn on the cruise control, and, and really it is just a flat out burn until you get to Winnipeg. I did make some interesting observations along the way, and one is that you pass what they call the longitudinal center of Canada. It's interesting in that it provides the exact 
coordinates for the meridian. A meridian is a line that runs north to south in the world, dividing it up uh, east to west. It, it provides the exact coordinates for the meridian that marks the center position east-west in Canada. And I was happy to know that that actually included Newfoundland as well. But it's kind of a marker where it's like, okay, you've gotten halfway across the country. So that was sort of like, yay, you know, <laughs> I made it so far. And I do have GPS coordinates for this. Uh, 96 degrees, 48 minutes, 35 seconds and there is a sign on both sides of the highway marking this as sort of an unusual spot and I thought that, that was really neat. The other thing is as you drive along this flat highway and the trees start to disappear as you get closer to Winnipeg you start to see the tall buildings looming in the background and you can see them for miles and miles and miles because the land is quite flat so you're just seeing buildings growing, 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 growing on the highway and I thought that that was a really neat site, especially coming from driving for a few days through northern Ontario, where all you're seeing is just pine trees after pine trees after pine trees and small lakes and rivers, that all of a sudden this huge metropolitan city begins to loom on the horizon. And you get a sense that, you know, there's something really important coming up ahead. Now, Winnipeg is a, it's an interesting town for a lot of reasons, but one of the interesting things about it is it has a ring road that runs all the way around the downtown area. So you don't actually have to get into the downtown to access anything in Winnipeg. Now, this is a big change for me, um, being somebody who lives within a couple hours of Toronto in Ontario, where Toronto does not have that. Um, it basically has a highway that has, has runs through a good part of the city and then a couple of veins that run into it which are perpetually jammed with traffic this ring road was good i was told take the ring road on the north side that the conditions are better i decided that i was going to stop and pick up some supplies and pick up some alcohol while i was in winnipeg and then i was going to go ahead and head to the park now, this is where my first serious observation happened. So I pulled into a small plaza. The plaza looked good. It looked like any normal plaza in any normal town. I mean, everything was clean. It had a grocery store, like a subway, I don't know, super cuts, this kind of thing, a strip mall. And it also had a liquor store. So I parked the van, I grabbed myself a little bite to eat, I think, at the subway, and then I headed over into the liquor store. Now, this was a big change for me. Once I got into the liquor store, you're essentially the, in a, a, a glass vestibule and you feel kind of like you're just trapped in this glass box. A lady behind a, a counter, behind a, a sheet of like bulletproof glass with a little tray slide that you could put things under it, you know, asked me for ID. So no, yeah, no problem. I pull out my Ontario driver's license. Now, before I had left, um, because while I would be away, my license would expire. So I just renewed my license early. And in Ontario, what they do when you renew your license, they'll take your old license, they'll put a sticker on it that says for identification purposes only. And then they give you a slip of paper that you are to keep with the license until your uh, new proper license arrives. Anyway, so I handed her my license and she spent a long time examining it. it it's strange because they're so close to Ontario that to me, it, it looked like she was looking at something she'd never seen before. Uh, she examined it, flipped it over, read all the fine print on it, 
turned it around and said, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. Uh, this license is expired. I said, well, it, it doesn't matter. It's for identification purposes only. Um, I do have a, a slip that, that shows that it's up to date, but uh, it, it doesn't have a picture. It's just a printed slip. So she says, okay, well, do you have any other kind of uh, photographic identification? So I go in my wallet and I dig out. I have a, a, a federal ID as well. So I, gi I give that to her. She takes a good look at that. That ID is completely valid and probably of a much higher security standard than the provincial driver's license that I have. And uh, she says, no, I'm sorry. You're also going to have to, like, we can accept this, but you'll need an additional piece of photo ID. So I'm like, okay, well, I've already given you my license. I've given you my federal ID. You know, I, <laughs> I pull every card out of my wallet and sort of fan them out and go, look, at, like, what do you want? Like, I don't have anything left, a, a library card, a, a Costco membership. Like, I don't know what's what you want here. And she's like, well, do you have a passport? And the truth is, I, I did have a passport. I am carrying my passport in case something happened and uh, I needed to go into the States or needed to travel or fly, something like that. But that was back in the van and I, I really didn't want to go back to the van and get it. And uh, she basically looks at all these cards I fan out and says, no, I'm sorry, none of these are any good. I said, okay, well, listen, if the reason why you're rejecting my license is because you're telling me it's, it's not valid, um, here's the paper that uh, shows that this license is valid until I receive a proper copy. So I give her the paper. And again, it's like she's studying this paper. She's reading all the fine print. She concludes, oh, this has nothing to do with your driver's license. This is something to do with something else. So I, I literally have to, and now mind you, I'm working through like a piece of bulletproof glass here with like a little metal tray underneath. So I can't like point to anything. She, she kind of slides it back. I look at it and I literally put it up to the window and I'm pointing, you know, this is an Ontario driver's license. This is showing that the new, you know, I, I had to walk her through this whole, whole process. And uh, so finally after, and this is, this negotiation is taking like 15 minutes. Like this is ridiculous. Finally, I slide this under, she examines it again, says, okay, that's fine. I'll let you in. So, you know, I'm like, eh, and then another door opens and I'm imagining that in this like plastic vestibule, if I don't know, I don't know why they need so much. I, well, I kind of do. She explained some of it to me, but I imagine if you were like a malcontent or something, they could just lock you in here and you're in this like bulletproof box. So it's a very claustrophobic feeling. Nonetheless, uh, she buzzes me in and now I'm on the other side of the door where she's sitting. So I say to her, Hey, like what's with this idea? I've never, I've never come across this before. I, I've never heard of this. Um, I've never had anybody quit. And I, and look, I don't look like I'm underage. Okay. Um, I don't think I've been asked for ID for 10 years, maybe more. So she proceeds to explain to me that this particular liquor store and all liquor stores, uh, from what she said in Winnipeg, get robbed so often that they're actually, I think they're recording everybody's ID that walks in and because people would apparently would just go in with a bag, fill it up with whatever they wanted, alcohol, whatever, and just walk right out the door. So all these new security measures have been put in place. 
I'm like, okay, that's really strange because this actually looked like a nice suburban neighborhood. This this did not look like a downtown area. There were no sketchy people walking around. But yeah, she said this, like she was speaking about the liquor store that she works in and then other liquor stores in general and just said the rate of crime and robbery is so high that we literally have to like super ID everybody. And, and they were, it wasn't, this wasn't like an ageist thing. I noticed while I was in the store, people that looked much older than me, say in their sixties, they would walk in. And again, she would request uh, some kind of ID and she would examine it and then eventually buzz them in. Um, I did get what I was looking for and I headed back to the van, but it got me thinking, you know, uh, what, what is going on in Winnipeg? So I did a little bit of research and it was quite surprising. So Winnipeg is the capital city of Manitoba and it has a population of about 750,000. So three quarters of a million people, which is really large considering, uh, most of the cities that I have been going through. And it is the sixth largest city in all of Canada. Now, apparently the name comes from a Cree first nations word, meaning muddy water, which I thought was kind of appropriate because, uh, I guess they're having a problem with crime, which I dug into a little bit more. So for a long time, Winnipeg was known as a quote unquote murder capital of Canada with the highest per capita homicide rate. And now it's actually the second, uh, only to Thunder Bay, which is a much smaller town, but it's still the highest in robbery rate. And by the way, this all comes from Statistics Canada. This isn't my opinion, and I'm sorry to anybody who's living in Winnipeg, but this is what Statistics Canada says. In 2020, it was also named the violent crime capital of Canada, according to the police reported crime severity index. Now, I don't really know what that index includes, but uh, obviously there is a problem with crime in Winnipeg. That's basically the, the bottom line here. And that was apparent even from just stopping in that liquor store. So I decided I wasn't going to stick around very long and I was going to head out to the provincial park where I had booked a site. I headed northeast from Winnipeg, uh, around that ring road a little bit, and up to the road that takes you to this Birds Hill Park. Now, once I got there, I had a really hard time finding my site, and I'm noticing a commonality between uh, different parks, whether they be provincial or national parks in Canada, in that the signage is absolutely terrible. Now, I didn't realize this, but this park is, one, it's huge. Two, it has a giant ring road running around the outside of it as well. So when you enter the park, and I'm like, okay, I'm entering the park, Somewhere there's going to be a gate. They're going to tell me, okay, your site's over here. They'll put it on a map. You'll register, et cetera, et cetera. No, you're just on this road that's just running through. Now it's an unpopulated area, just going in a giant circle. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm in a park. The speed limit's probably like 40 kilometers an hour or something like that because there's kids on bikes and, and all that jazz. Um, I don't know what the official speed limit is, but people were literally passing me like I was standing still. And I'm trying to keep an eye out right, left and right. Like, where is the campground? What's going on here? People are just passing me. They're either right up my rear end or they're passing me. And I'm like, I have no idea where they're going. So I got to pull over 
pull out my phone, look up a map, and I found that there's actually two maps of the park. One is this giant ring road. I guess they can take you to different hiking trails and stuff like that. And the other is the specific map for the campground. So I looked at this ring road map and determined, okay, my campground is way up over here, and then I got to go down. So I, I followed that ring road until I got to my campground. Once I got into the campground, I found my site and kind of scoped it out. But I decided because I know I was just staying the night. Um, I didn't really want to stay in this area too long. I decided I was going to just scope it out, make sure everything was good. And then I was going to head over to the dump station where I could dump my tanks, uh, fill up on fresh water, do all that jazz normally. And this is just a little tip for people. A lot of, a lot of times, when you go to these parks, uh, when you go to leave in the morning and you want to dump your tank, there is a big lineup at the dump station. Now, for me, because I'm traveling across country, I don't really care if um, my tanks, you know, have one day worth of waste in them. That, that doesn't really matter. It's just that I'm dumping the tanks regularly so that I'm never in a position where uh, my tanks are full and I can't use them. So, my decision was I would go to the sanitary station that evening, dump my tanks, fill up on fresh water, and then the next day I'd be just basically ready to roll from my campsite and I could go and explore and check everything out, you know, locally. Uh, I headed over to the uh, sanitary station, which, by the way, was right beside the park office. And they also have these people that are called like park patrol, um, who, I don't know, they're they look kind of like police people, but they're kids. Um, anyway, so I pull up to the uh, sanitary station and I dump my tanks. Um, no problem. I pull ahead. I fill up on fresh water. And here's another thing. The fresh water station in this park, and now I've seen this at other parks before, and this is something to keep in mind. They don't actually have a hose attached. It's just a, a spigot. So you have to bring your own hose. So anyway, I dug out my potable water hose, which I don't know if they're actually any different than a regular garden hose, other than the fact that they're white in color. But uh, I, I dug out my potable water hose, hooked it up, filled up my van. Okay, I'm ready to go. Get behind the wheel, turn the key, click, 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 click. Nothing. Van won't start. Oh my gosh. So, you know, key off, key on, this time, nothing. Just not even a light on the dash, nothing, just completely dead. So I'm like, okay, um, I don't know, maybe something with the battery when they last worked on it, maybe there's something going on there. So I get out, I grab the connections on the battery. They're good and tight. Okay, I don't know what's going on. Get back in the van, try it again. I get like a click, 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 like something's gonna happen, but the starter just doesn't engage. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right? And I'm broken down literally at the sewage station in the park. Um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is it, but I'm starting to lose daylight. And I think, okay, probably the best and safest thing to do would be to call uh, CAA. That's the Canadian Automobile Association, much like AAA in the States. 
give them a call and get them to tow me at least to my campsite for the night where the next morning I could make a decision where I can either try to troubleshoot this problem or have it towed to a mechanic. And just understand like after what happened to me in Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay, this was just like icing on the cake. It was like, I can't believe this. So I put in the call to CAA and really this is where another issue started. CAA can't come and get you unless you have an address. So, you know, they say, where are you located? And I said, I'm at the, uh, I think it was called the it's Bird, Birds Hill Provincial Park uh, Waste Station um, for the, I guess, Lark Bay Campground, something like that. And they said, okay, well, where's that? And I said, uh, well, <laughs> it's at Birds Hill Provincial Park. Uh, do you have a street address? No, I don't. And at this time, the park office is closed. Um, do you have, so I said, listen, I can give you GPS coordinates. I know I can like drop a pin or something on my phone, get GPS coordinates, and that'll take the tow truck driver right to me. Oh no, our, our system doesn't work that way. Uh, what we can do is we can send you a link on your, like through your text message and that link, you click on it, it takes you to a web page. So thank goodness that I had data uh, and data reception at this time. It takes you to a web page. That web page will then uh, request your location and it will generate, I, I believe it was like a, a two word or three word uh, kind of a suffix that will give a unique uh, location to where you are and that will tell the tow truck driver where to go. I said, okay, fine, let's do that. So they send me this link. I go through the rigmarole on the uh, web page, and I get these three words. And it this was really messed up. The words that this thing generated were all like negative words about being broken down. Like if I, I wish I had recorded them, but it was like stranded, uh, broken, unhappy. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, well, how, first of all, I don't know how these words give you a location and whoever is making these words, like, couldn't they be like, help is coming or like, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, so I, I tell the agent on the phone, okay, these are the words. And uh, they said, okay, that identifies you as being in Quinty West, which is, uh, you know, a good 2000 and change kilometers away from me in Southern Ontario. I'm like, no, definitely not there. They said, okay, um, maybe it's in, and they named some other town, which I, I looked into my Google maps. Yep. That's, uh, you know, 400 kilometers to the West of here. So they say, okay, uh, well, I guess this, that system's not really working. What we're going to do is we are going to dispatch the tow truck driver, uh, to the nearest, like with no address, just to the nearest city. And the nearest city was just a very small town outside this park. And they said, but what we do is we put in the notes that you are at the RV dumping station in the Birds Hill Provincial Park. So, okay, that's fine. Um, no problem. Time now is probably around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Um, it's getting dark because I've just sort of crossed that time change 
threshold. So the uh, evening hours are are come, you know, sneaking up faster than they would be if you were on the far west border of a particular time zone. But anyway, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Send the tow truck out. What what's the estimated time? They said, well, um, we don't know. We will have somebody call you. So fine. I hang up the phone. I'm hanging out in the van, um, tinkering around under the hood a little bit. You know, still trying to understand what's going on. I get a phone call. Yeah, hi, this is so-and-so from CAA. We've contacted a tow truck company and uh, estimated time is about 45 minutes to an hour. No problem at all. So I go and uh, I hang up, I go and get my, I have a light, which is kind of like a battery-powered work light. And by pressing the button on the top, and this is a really handy thing to have. Um, years and years ago, I used to have this flashlight that had like a red dome on the top and it would flash. It had little tripod legs and you could stick it out if you were in an emergency, kind of like a roadside flare that was battery operated. Um, at some point, the batteries leaked in it and it broke. But I discovered that one of these little work light things I had, it just takes a couple AA batteries, but it is quite bright because it's LED. Uh, you press the button on the top and it goes into like, I don't know, like SOS mode or something. So the light actually flashes on it to, you know, denote that somebody's in danger or you're broken down or whatever. So I took this, put it outside the van and I went in the van and I proceeded to wait. You know, luckily I have a little TV in the van, so I'm, you know, watching some movie or something and I'm kind of sitting up front looking around for a tow truck to come. Interestingly enough, these park, uh, the park patrol kids, I'm going to call them, they would just drive by me like, I don't know, as if I wasn't there. And I have an emergency flasher beacon. My hood is up with a prop rod. I'm pretty sure that's the universal sign for broken down. Not one of them stopped to see if I needed help, if I was in distress, nothing. And I literally just waited and waited and waited. I didn't want to start making supper yet because I, you know, Murphy's law, right? I'll start cooking something on the stove. The tow truck's going to come, you know, hook the van on dishes and food's going to go flying everywhere. So I'm just literally waiting, you know, watching TV or then listening to the radio, uh, doing a bit of journaling. And the hours are going on at 9, 10, 11. I call CAA back. Okay, what's going on? It's been, you know, three hours. And they said, well, oh, right, yeah. So we um, contacted the tow truck operator, and um, apparently they're busy right now. So we've contacted another tow truck operator, and they're going to be coming to get you. I said, okay, that's that's fine. Um, when should they be there? Oh, roughly 45 minutes to an hour. I think this is just a standard response. I don't think they actually know when anybody's coming. They just say that. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. It's now it's after midnight. I think it's like 1230. It's, it's like 1am. My poor light's been going outside for hours. Nobody's stopping, um, you know, to see if I'm okay. No tow truck is coming. So I call CAA and I say, you know, what's, what, what's the deal here? Um, oh, well, you see the tow trucks are, um, they're engaged in other activities at the moment and, uh, you are uh, out of town. So I'm thinking, first of all, okay, I'm literally 15 minutes 
from Winnipeg, a city of three quarter of a million people. We can't get a tow truck in the span of five hours to come and move me. What literally like, I don't know, uh, one kilometer. Um, well, what we can do is we'll call the tow truck company and get a status update and we'll call you back. I said, no, 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 forget it. it it's now, it's, it's like almost one o'clock in the morning. I, 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 I'm not going to waste a tow call so that you can tow me to my site and then I can get up the next day and basically get towed again to a dealership, right? I, I don't want to waste my tows. You only get so many tows when you buy the plan through CAA. And, you know, it's funny that this happened to me because this happened to me once before I was fishing up on the Ottawa River and uh, I broke down and I was about um, one hour from the closest you know, major town to the east and about an hour and a half from the closest major town to the west. I literally waited with my car for CAA to come for two days. I'm serious, two days. They told me, yeah, we'll have a tow truck there tonight. And by some certain point, I had called back, what's going on? Oh, well, they're busy. You know, it's always the same standard story where they're trying to preserve some semblance of customer service by being polite, which... I appreciate, but I would also appreciate truthfulness on their part. Now, whether the lack of honesty comes from, you know, the independent contractors that they hire to do the towing or whether CAA actually knows the, the service, like, I don't think I've ever been successfully towed by CAA. And it does give you this sort of false sense of security that if you break down, you're going to be able to call them and they're going to come and get you. But unfortunately, the reality is that if you're not, you know, really close or, and somebody explained that it's because CAA just pays a flat rate to the tow truck companies. So CAA calls are kind of at the bottom of their priority list and they will address those after they've addressed any kind of private tow calls because private tow calls make them more money. Um, so this is a message to CAA, uh, either pay the drivers more or somehow improve your service because basically from my personal experience, there's almost no point in having CAA. I'm sure if I had waited long enough, uh, CAA would have come, um, but it could have been days judging by my previous experience. Anyway, uh, so as these uh, park patrol kids are driving by, uh, I literally get out and flag one down and say, hey, listen, I'm broken down. They're like, oh yeah, we saw you there. Yeah, we were wondering about that. I, and I said, well, how come you know nobody came over to check on me? Yeah, no answer. Anyway, I said, listen, I can't get CAA tonight. I am bag tired. I've been driving all day. I haven't eaten dinner. I'm just going to stay here the night. Uh, they said, yeah, that's fine. We'll just leave a note for the uh, office staff in the morning and they will be fine with that. I said, if, if you guys don't mind, you can give me a hand and I'll just put the van in neutral. We'll give it a push off the uh, dumping station and freshwater fill station, we can just get it over to the side so that in the morning when people come to dump, I'm out of the way. Uh, no, no, that's fine. You're just fine there. Which to me, like, 
as somebody who, first of all, is in trouble, secondly, has paid for a campsite, and thirdly, knows what it's like at a dump station in the morning, I'm like, why, why wouldn't you want to get a vehicle out of the dump station? The dump station can only accommodate uh, like two lanes of traffic, and I'm blocking one of them. Anyway, they didn't want to help. They weren't interested in it. And so I said, okay, you know, screw it. I'm just staying here. I went, I folded up my trouble light. I put down my curtains. I made myself a nice dinner. Um, luckily that that area didn't stink or smell or anything like that. So, and I stayed the night. The next morning I got up, you know, with a fresh head and a fresh perspective and really started to think about what was going on with the van. So I started out trying to check the starter relay and the starter solenoid. And sometimes starters just stick or bind or uh, they can get what's called like a rotor locked position where it kind of stops between. It's extremely rare, but it, it can sort of stop between two of the magnets in the motor that uh, make it work. So <clears throat> I went under the, and the <laughs> it sounds silly, but the solution to that is to go under and like tap on it with a hammer to try to loosen stuff up. So I did that. I, I tried to check the relay with my multimeter. It seemed okay. I'm like, okay, geez, I don't know what's going on here. I get in the van, try to start it again. You know, now I've got nothing. Um, no dash lights, no power windows, no interior lamps. That That's it. It's like the whole van is dead. I go out, I check the battery. Battery's good. And then I'm thinking, okay, so it's electrical and it's affecting multiple systems. So that takes me back to those fusible links. Um, the ones that the mechanic did his hack job on uh, a month or so previous and that I had to replace some of them. And some of them were intact. I think there were eight and I think four of them were replaced. Uh, I remembered an old trick where you can check power in a wire and you do that by basically taking a, a like a pin or something and you stick it through the casing of the wire so that it's in contact with the, the wire inside the sheath and then you can check that to the ground of the battery and so see whether or not there's actually power in that wire with you're checking with a multimeter of course or a test light if you have one i, I have a multimeter so i went to the park bulletin board and i took a thumbtack out of the uh, one of the signs and i went and the fusible i checked all the fuses and the fusible links i had repaired they were good and i went to the fusible links uh, upstream of the fusible link so that would tell me if the fusible link was blown and checked for power i had power on all the fusible links so i thought okay it's not them however one of those fusible links is like really big so i figured that that's got to be the fusible link that goes down to the starter motor so just kind of as a double check i went back to that fusible link probed it with the tack checked it for power and then no power I'm like, okay, I just had power on this. So I check one of the smaller fusible links, mm, no power. Okay. Then I go to one of the fuses that I had replaced. You know, I, I replaced the fusible link with a fuse, checked from the fuse, no power there. Okay, so maybe it's a problem with the feed. So I go back to the feed of the fusible links there's like a great big wire and then it just splits into like eight of these fusible links 
and I check that wire for power. Now that that's got to have power. That's feeding these fusible. No power there. Okay, so for some reason, I'm not getting power to any of these. So I follow that wire in the harness back, and the best I can see is it actually goes through like a plug um, where it, it gets plugged together with another wire of the same size. I tried to undo that plug. I kind of rubbed it around, rechecked for power. Nope, no power, didn't matter. Kept following that wire back, and eventually that wire actually goes uh, basically directly to the battery. Now, because this is a camper van, uh, I think because it's a camper van, the, uh, you know, the lead, uh, battery connections that sit on top of the battery that I had checked the night before and made sure they were tight. Um, they have kind of like a clamp where multiple wires go into each one. And I'm assuming that's because uh, maybe some stuff goes to the camper, maybe some stuff goes to different systems in the van. It, it's not like a modern car where you would see all those connections kind of go and be like almost like melted into that lead piece. This lead piece actually has like a clamp that, that's holding a few wires in it. So I, I start, I tug on this, on this one wire that I had traced and it, it's wiggly. It's loose. And I'm like, what the heck? So I take that wire and I just kind of shove it into that, you know, connector thing best I can. I go in the van key on boom, van starts. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Van's running now. So I take the van. I've got the campsite rented until I don't know what time, like say 11 o'clock AM, something like that. Van's running, put it in gear and I pull off the waste station, much to the chagrin of the line of people who are develop, you know, developing behind me and, you know, kind of complaining and murmuring. Although none of them asked me if I needed help either, which again is very unneighborly in my opinion, whatever. I take it back to my campsite, um, you know, back it in, open up the hood, grab my toolkit and I undo that clamp that's holding those wires inside that clamp uh it's it's just it's all corroded it's all rusted and it's all burnt so there's obviously been a bad connection in there for quite some time and just grabbing you know the piece that screws onto the battery uh and being like oh that's tight that's obviously not enough in this case because each individual wire that feeds into this clamp uh would need to have good contact so luckily I carry a full toolkit and this is some advice um, for anybody who's going on a really long road trip, pack as many tools as you can, especially if you're mechanically inclined. I mean, if you don't know how to do this stuff, don't start mucking around with it. But uh, in my case, I carried a soldering iron. And if you remember in my, one of my previous episodes, I had installed a 2000 watt inverter which will easily power my soldering iron so i ran an extension cord out and i spent the morning just stripping the wires trying to clean them up the best i could they were covered in corrosion uh, clean them up the best i could tin them with the solder solder them all together and get them into this clamp and make a really good connection with that once i did that put everything back together van started up 
no problem at all. Just boom, everything worked. Uh, everything was going. So I figure I solved that problem. And I'm sure that if I had had this towed to a dealership or a mechanic, uh, I probably would have been charged an arm and a leg for diagnostic. And they probably would have started changing who knows. A lot of these mechanics, they tend to just you know, shoot the parts cannon at something. They could have told me it was my starter. They could have told me, uh, I don't even want to go down that road. But I'm glad that I found that uh, it was actually where the wire enters the little wire clamp on the battery. And, you know, the funny thing is, if you were to take those wires, I, I believe there's three wires that go into that clamp and tug on them, it appeared tight because all three, you're tugging on three wires all at the same time, but it was just one of those wires that was loose. Anyway, I got them tinned up with solder, cleaned up, tinned up, um, put back in, everything was running great, and I decided that uh, I was good to go, so I disembarked uh, my campground. I'd spent enough time there, um, not enough time on my campsite, but I'd spent enough time at that campground, and I decided I was going to go uh, check out the Museum of Human Rights in downtown Winnipeg. So I braved entering the city again and made my way to the parking lot for the museum, which was actually inexpensive. I think it might have been like, I don't know, a dollar an hour or something like that. Um, fed some money into a machine, got a ticket, put it in the van, and I headed in and towards the museum. Now, the museum from the outside is really cool. It is an architectural, and in the inside too, actually, but it's just an architectural marvel. Um, it looks almost like when a... Uh, flower or like an orchid or something closes up for the night and it's it's got these like metal uh, shiny metal pieces that just wrap around it and it's located up on top of a hill it's it's quite a sight to be seen uh, I found my way to the uh, regular entrance. I went in, I paid my entry fee, and I started to go through some of the various exhibits. Uh, I'm not going to go through everything that I saw in there because there is quite a bit, um, but I do want to note some of the things that I thought were interesting um, and I think that, uh, that are really pertinent considering what's going on in our current climate today. One is that um, they had a, this is something that really struck me. So they had a, a listing of, it was like a chronological listing of all the people who had uh, improved human rights over the years. And there, there were lots of famous people mentioned, some people that I hadn't heard of, but I was surprised in that they listed Karl Marx. Uh, on this. So it, for those of you who don't know, Karl Marx is basically the father of communism. And, you know, we know from our history that communism has led to more deaths, um, especially more deaths than uh, the fascism that was going on uh, in the East um, during the Second World War. And it's actually pertinent because right now there is a war going on with Ukraine and another exhibit uh, in the museum was entitled famine as a weapon and they mentioned what's called 
Holodomor, which is a Ukrainian word meaning murder by hunger. And that was a mass genocide of the Ukrainian people um, from 1932 to 1933, where when the Soviet Union under communist rule uh, was in charge of the Ukraine, they would basically take the food away from the Ukrainian farmers. And this was under Stalin. Uh, the collective farming policies had already caused a food shortage. And they decided that because the Ukrainian farmers were probably the best farmers, uh, they would take their food away. So they took the food that they farmed away. And actually, the people who were farming the food were threatened with death uh, if they tried to hide any or even if they went out into the fields to pick up like stray grains of rice uh, or try to get like little bits of food collect anything they were threatened under death and what is said is that more people died under that um, than they did during the holocaust now, I don't know if for sure, I'm not an expert on either of these things. So if I'm off, I apologize. Uh, but that is my understanding of the situation. And I found that dichotomy between looking at uh, communism as a solution or uh, an advancement to human rights, and yet at the same time being the founding principle uh, behind a genocide of a people, uh, I, I, I found that dichotomy really interesting. And I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that the father of communism should be listed as one of the people who advanced human rights. I mean, there have been people that have done terrible things throughout human history, and they've also done good things. I'm sure uh, Genghis Khan probably did some good things too, but he also did a lot of really bad things. So I don't, you know, I don't think Genghis Khan was listed as advancing human rights. And I don't think that uh, some of these people who have committed or as a result of their philosophies and ideals led to massive atrocities, I don't really think that they, uh, and this is my personal opinion, deserve a place on the wall of, of people who have advanced uh, human rights uh, the world over. The museum also contained an original canister of Zyklon B gas, which was used in the Nazi concentration camps. It contained a home uh, radiation measurement kit from the Cold War, whereby people in Canada or North America were to basically, you know, after a nuclear bomb were to strike, uh, I guess come outside and check for radiation to see if it was safe to go. And that, that was really eye-opening that that was something that was a little bit before my time, but that was something that would have been in people's hearts and minds at the time that, you know, this, the, the, the threat of nuclear war, and again, pertinent today with what's going on, that the threat of nuclear war was a real visceral threat to their lives, so much so that the government was distributing these home radiation kits. That, that was a really eye-opening experience. Something else I found really interesting was an exhibit entitled Fragile Liberties, the Emergency Measures and Quebec's October Crisis. So apparently in the 1970s, a provincial cabinet minister and British diplomat were taken hostage by a violent group of extremists in Quebec called the FLQ. At that time, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau 
said the government had to root out terrorism. So he invoked the War Measures Act, which suspended citizens' rights and gave police sweeping powers. The police searched homes without warrants and jailed more than 400 innocent people. I found this really interesting in light of the Emergency Measures Act that was invoked in Ottawa due to the truckers' rally uh, exercising their right to free speech and their right to protest. And at the end of this exhibit, it notes that the crisis raised questions about the balance between personal rights and public security. Today, the government's actions during an emergency are subject to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I'm not a particularly political person, but it is not clear to me that today, in light of the pandemic, the trucker rally, lockdowns, uh, people not being allowed to work, that what is going on is in line with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I find it very surprising that any of the voices who have talked about this have essentially been silenced, and we're all expected to go along with what the government says, even though the past has obviously repeated itself, and we can see this occurring again and again and again throughout history. Anyway, moving along, the last thing that I wanted to note was they did have some nice exhibits on Indigenous rights in Canada. I didn't really think that they focused on enough. I would love to have learned more about it, um, but there is one quote that I would like to read, and it really hit home for me, and it made me think a lot about how the Indigenous people in Canada have been treated. And this is a quote from Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs from 1913 to 1932. And the quote is as follows. I want to get rid of the Indian problem, dot, dot, dot. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, end quote. Okay, that's just rude. Um, I have no idea, and now I understand, like, this is 1913, uh, but this is well past sort of the initial uh, original co colonialization period in Canada. And I had no idea that that was the political sentiment at the time. I, I'm, I'm actually shocked and appalled that that, that would be how uh, politicians in this country would view and treat the First Nations people. Um, that being said, I do want to leave this uh, with a positive note. And as you leave the museum, uh, you go down an elevator and there is a huge sign on the wall. And I, I really like this. It's not, it's a, the quote is not attributed to anybody, but I really like what it said. And that's that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I truly believe that. I had spoken to one of the museum staffers and commented how relevant I thought uh, some of this stuff from the past is considering the current uh, political climate. And he said that the exhibits within the museum are getting more and more relevant by the day. And you know what? I couldn't agree more. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Um, I would invite you all to check out my Instagram at roadtrekking, all one word, underscore podcast. And of course, I would ask that you hit the like and subscribe buttons and notification on your 
podcast platform of preference. There's some alliteration for you. And of course, don't forget to be kind to one another and keep on road trekking. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.